You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for February 2014. Today's episode is titled, The Process of Finding Your Life Purpose. One of the traits of human beings is the desire to find purpose in life. Atheists seek to find man's purpose within man. Theists, on the other hand, seek to find human purpose in God. In particular, biblical theists who accept Christ as Lord seek guidance from Scripture. Individually, each worker must seek to develop and maintain an intimate relationship with Christ, which provides the basis for the process of finding and fulfilling his or her life purpose in accordance with the C4 principle. Management must function as under-shepherds to Christ by providing a context and culture that encourages the process of finding and fulfilling God's purpose for each worker. Organizations that build a culture of effectively shepherding workers will produce excellent value for those they serve and will be profitable as well. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, The Process of Finding Your Life Purpose. Very difficult to grab a hold of that reality that we're here for a reason. In fact, many people can say, yes, I believe I'm here for a reason, but if we could really see their heart, there's stuff going on in their heart that's, that's questioning that, that's making them wonder. So it's, it's uh, easy to say yes, it's hard for that to be a reality for anyone. So would it surprise you to know that, that, that there's a process that God expects to us, us to engage into? to discover that reality. Would that surprise you? I mean, who here was born? Anybody here was born? Everybody's born. Okay, when you were born, were you born an adult person? Okay, were you born a baby? Yes. All right, so you're born a baby. Now, did you have the option to grow up in one year? Two? Three? Five? Ten? Fifteen? Yeah, they think so. <laughs> the reality is that God's got a process called, called physical maturity. And it takes about 25 years for a person, any person, every person, as far as we can tell, to fully mature physically. Which means everything works properly. The last thing that develops, according to researchers, is the brain, the full capacity of the brain. Now, you talk to your 15-year-old, your 16-year-old, they will tell you how stupid you are and how smart they are, and which just evidence that their brain is not fully developed. <laughs> so that's, he is a god of process. Is that a fair statement? Yes. yes. If he's a god of process, why would you expect that the journey of finding your life purpose would not be a process? Why would you think that God would just whisper in your ear? <clears throat> a number of years ago, I had a man that had went through the seminar uh, want to have lunch with me. So we sit down over lunch, and he's talking about his journey, and it's a long journey. Lots of challenges and difficulties and problems. And finally, I, I got the sense that I knew what he was wanting. And I kind of leaned across the table, like I'm doing with Galen right now. I said, are you telling me, am I hearing you correctly? But I think what you want is God to whisper in your ear. He said, yeah, that's what I want. Whisper in my ear and tell me exactly what I'm supposed to do. <clears throat> I said, what if God doesn't do that? What if God has a different way? Are you willing to let God define the way? 
Are you willing to let him find the process? Are you willing to comply with his will and his ways? So he reluctantly said, well, sort of. You know, he didn't use those words, but that's really what he meant. And I can tell you I've been working with this man nearly 15 years now. And to this day, uh, he's still very early in his journey. Because every step he takes, there's a struggle, a fight. And a lot of it is just he wants to do his will according to his way. And he wants God to bless his will according to his way. He doesn't want God to define the process. Now, does anybody resemble that? Probably most of us do. Yeah, most of us would like God just to bless you know, us with complying with our wishes. So the challenge for us is can we let God be God? Can we let him rule and make the choices, make the decisions? All right, I'm working on getting my PowerPoint to work here. It's not cooperating. So, Philip, I need some help here, I guess. Uh, that's going to be challenging. There's some way I could have the iPad here. I could do that. But if I can't, I'm going to have to kind of mosey over here and do things. But I will see if we have a longer cord. Okay. So, we've lost it totally, huh? Well, technology is wonderful when it works. Uh, so let me just tell you what we're, what we're going to do. We're going to talk about finding fulfilling your life purpose, and we're going to talk about the process of doing that. So, first thing what I want to do is, is I want to, I'm going to tell you basically two stories. Uh, one is a biblical story, and the other is a story of, of a man like you and me and his journey of finding his life purpose. And I'm going to build the conversation around something you're very familiar with. Okay, can you go ahead and put it into uh, presenter mode? Can you do that? There we go. So we're going to talk about David in Psalm 23, and then we're going to talk about Billy. And both of these are great stories, and you'll see the parallels in the two stories. So can you go ahead to the next slide? So let's talk. I'm going to set up Billy's story for you. Okay, first of all, Billy was born into a very wealthy family, and they were cultural Christians. Now, do you know what a cultural Christian is? It's someone who professes to be a Christian, but they largely live as the culture lives. They think like the culture. They act like the culture. They define success like the culture. Christianity is not a def not the definer of their lifestyle. The culture is. So that's the way he, he was a cultural Christian, and he lived at a time. By the way, he does he, his, the time that he lived is not today. Yeah, he lived at a different time. Now you may find as you hear his story, it sure sounds like today, because there's a lot of similarities. In fact, Billy has written a book about what genuine Christianity is, and I've read his book. And I was telling my wife, I am looking throughout this book for any clues as to the time that he wrote this book. I only found one in the whole book. 
And if I think about it at the end, I'll tell you what it was, and that'll give you give away the time. But otherwise, the things that he wrote, you would think they were, he was writing them for today. Because Christianity today, the vast majority of places that I've been, and let me just tell you some of the places I've been. I have been to Europe, to South Africa. I've been to Asia, Canada. I'm getting ready to go to Mexico. I've been across the U.S. Is that a fairly broad spectrum of places? Did I tell you South Africa? Been there? And what I see in every Christian gathering that I'm at, I attend is the same thing. It does not matter. In fact, I remember sitting in the audience in Johannesburg, South Africa, looking out the window, looking at the congregation, just watching what was going on and saying, if I didn't know where I was, I would think I was back in the U.S. It certainly looks like the U.S., feels like the U.S., but it's not the U.S. So Billy is a guy that is very interesting. Starts out with a very wealthy family. Then, can you, whoops, more technology going on. What happened to Billy is that his dad died when he was about eight. And his mother was so overwhelmed with grief that she couldn't really handle the reality of the death of the dad. Thank you very much. Yeah, okay. That was the failure point. I love, is that a Dell term, failure point? No, that's Six Sigma. Okay, it's a Six Sigma thing? Wow, what happened there? Oh, get rid of that? Okay. Is there hope here? Man. There we go. Okay. I didn't know I had that mode. Okay. All right. So father dies. Mother's overwhelmed. And so she decides to ship Billy off to an aunt and an uncle in another part of the country who, unbeknownst to the mother, are not cultural Christians. They are genuine Christians, which means they really know Jesus Christ, and they really try to walk out the reality of living biblically. Now, the mother didn't know this because they were, they were called closet Christians because the culture was it's not acceptable to be a fanatical Christian. That's another term they used. So to live in that culture, you had to, you had to keep it kind of quiet. So Billy's there for a couple of years, from about age 9 to about age 12. Some way or another, the mom gets wind of the fact that this aunt and uncle are they're fanatics. She goes ballistic. We can't have fanatics. That's not acceptable. And so she retrieves Billy, and Billy comes back to live with his, his mother, and his mother was determined to, to get him paganized again, which wasn't hard. At 12, you know, whatever influence that someone's had on you is easily lost. And Billy had been influenced by his aunt and uncle. He really loved him and really he enjoyed what he learned about the Lord and about the Bible and was really getting very committed to living biblically. And so the mom really didn't have to work very hard to get that out of him, and she successfully did. And so by probably about 13 or 14, he was a rank pagan. All resemblance of Christianity was gone. So 
Then he went into college. And there he met William P. Now, I'm not going to tell you who William P. is because that would probably give away a lot of things. Because a number of you would start getting on the Internet and look up William P. I know. I thought about that this afternoon. I started to tell you his last name. No, I'm not going to do that. So, Melissa, you've already born another one? Is that right? Hey, no. hey. I, I mean, that was quick. <laughs> anyway, while he's in college, his grandfather and his uncle died. Now, they were very wealthy, too. And he wound up, Billy wound up inheriting a bunch of money. How would you like to be Billy? Mm. Yeah, if we're all honest, hey. In fact, most of us think if we have plenty of money, then our problems are pretty well solved. <laughs> Don't you think that way? Now, be brutally honest. Yeah, yes. you think that way. If you have money, then you really don't have any problems. <laughs> now, did you know the scripture addresses that idea? It specifically talks about people that think that way. Now, you know what scripture says? You can find this in Revelation chapter 3. Okay? The last letter of the seven churches in Asia, the one to Laodicea is where he talks about this. And he says, if you think that way, you think money is the answer, that money is security, first thing you need to know, you are in deception. And the way he says that is that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Any questions? <laughs> Furthermore, he says, you're lukewarm. I mean, that's a serious state right there. So Billy was, hey, he got this money. What do you think that did to his motivation in school? Boy, it went in the tank real quickly. So he got excited about, you know, partying. Billy's personality, from best I can tell, he was probably an ID personality. By the way, he was a great singer. He was known for his singing. People loved to hear him sing. And he was a party animal. He loved to party. Now, there were still some vestiges of that training he got from his aunt and uncle and Billy. And so that almost provided a little protection for him because he would see other people just do grossly pagan things. And he would look at that and say, eh, well, I'm not going to do that. So he had boundaries that the Holy Spirit had put in him by virtue of that training from the aunt and uncle that really protected him as he went through this party time. But also, while he's in this time, he's enamored with William. And what William's father did, William's father was an elected, elected public official. And they would go during college and watch the legislature operate. And Billy got fascinated with that. And so that's one of the things that kept him going, kept him from being a total reprobate, is the reality that he was fascinated with that. So he decided to run for office. And before he graduated from college, he's elected. He's 21 years old. He's elected to public office. Then at age 22, he went ahead and finished his bachelor's degree because once he got elected, he realized, you know, I really need to have a degree. So he went ahead and finished his bachelor's degree, and he wound up in his master's degree about six years later. So he got a little more serious. Then at age 25, you know, he had had a four-year career in public office. He really had been very, very well received. 
He was very popular and beginning to get a lot of influence. He was beginning to be well-known in, in many ways. One of the ways he was well-known is he frequented the, uh, the gentlemen's clubs. <laughs> and that was a very common place for many of the politicians, is they would go to the gentlemen's club and do the things that gentlemen do at gentlemen's clubs, which was very accepted in that culture of cultural Christianity. It was not a problem. And so he was very comfortable in that environment. He was comfortable debating in the legislature, and he was, he was able to win a lot of debates and influence people. He got legislation passed. He was having a really nice career. Everything was really rolling along pretty well. Plus, he's independently wealthy, so he has no problems, right? So he decides to go on a vacation. So he takes this vacation, and he goes with a friend. Now, this friend was the younger brother of the headmaster of the private school he attended when he was a boy. So he had known this, this man for a long time. So now, you know, Billy's an adult, and this man is probably his late 30s, something like that. He happens to be a professor at one of the major schools, and Billy thought, you know, this would be a very interesting traveling companion. He wasn't married then. He did get married till he was about, you know, late 30s or so. So he thought, traveling companion would be nice. We're going to go on vacation and have some fun, and we'll have a nice conversation. So he takes this man along. He agrees to pay this man's expenses, so we'll have a traveling companion. Now, how many of you ever had an invitation like that? There'll be a traveling companion for someone. So they're traveling, and they're talking about all kinds of things, and pretty soon the conversation came to theology. And Billy didn't know, but this guy was a fanatic. He was a closet Christian. He was a real Christian. And so, and he was smart. So he began to dialogue with Billy on theology. Well, Billy, you know, was kind of surprised about the conversation, but hey, I've got plenty of reasons not to believe in God, not to believe in the Bible, not to believe in Christ. No problem. I'll engage. So he engages with this guy. And so they're tussling back and forth. And every argument that Billy threw at him, this guy just knocked it down. This went on the whole vacation. <laughs> at the end, and, this, and his vacation was about three weeks, about three-week vacation. You know, politicians can do stuff like that, <laughs> particularly when you're independently wealthy. So at the end of the time, Billy sat down and he thought to himself, well, I gave this guy every objection I know of to Christianity, to Christ and the Bible, and he handled them beautifully. He said, man, I, I'm kind of compelled. Maybe this is true. Maybe Christ is real. Maybe the Bible is true. Maybe God exists. And so he realized that he was coming to a conviction about the reality of Christ and all that Christ stood for. So he became a genuine Christian. Now he has a dilemma. Hey, I got elected to a large degree because I was a casual Christian. I fit into the culture. I was like everybody else. And now I've become a fanatic. I've got to go in the closet. What do I do? You see, he has a career conundrum. He has a calling conundrum. What does he do? What has God called him to do? Can he stay in the public life? Can he do that? Well, he knew he couldn't go back to the gentlemen's clubs. He knew that he couldn't do that. Furthermore, in that day and time, 
it was not acceptable for men to stay home, particularly on a Sunday afternoon. That was just not acceptable. You know, you went out and you played and did things with the other guys. Well, now he was convicted to stay home and, and be around his family. That's something nobody else did. So he began to do little things like that, which seemed kind of very minor to us, but they were major deals in his time. And he knew that would be noticed. And he knew pretty soon he would be labeled a fanatic. And once you get that label, it's like the kiss of death. Okay. What, what, would you, what would it be like today if you decided to really go out and run for public office and really stand on Christ? And that becomes your major platform is I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Bible. I believe in the word of God informing our public policy and guiding us into how we structure our culture. How, do you, how far do you think that would go in our culture today? That would go down in flames in a hurry. Well, that would go down in flames at that time as well. So he's got a career conundrum. He needs to understand how do I find my purpose in life? I have come to Christ. What do I do next? So, any y'all connect with that? Mm-hmm. Hopefully you do. And even if you hadn't had a, haven't had a story as dramatic as Billy's, you've got a story. You have a story where Christ has come into your life, invaded your life, and turned everything upside down, and you're saying, now what? What do I do now? So I'm gonna, we'll talk about Billy a little bit more, but I want to take just a moment and talk to you about, about Psalm 23, a psalm that you should know well. And in the process, we're going to talk about David. So we're going to talk about David, and we're going to talk about Billy. They're going to be our illustrations tonight of the principles that we want you to see. Well, first of all, I want you to get the key idea of Psalm 23 relative It's the key idea, period, but we're going to be talking about Psalm 23 in light of calling. That's what we want to get to. The key idea is intimacy with the shepherd. Intimacy. It's very important that you get this. If you don't have an intimacy with the Father, it becomes extremely difficult for you to walk through the process of finding your calling. You've got to be in communion with him. Intimacy has basically two components. There's a relational component. There's a cognitive component. If you leave out the relational component and focus on the cognitive component, you just become an intellectual and usually very caught up in pride and arrogance. It, you will blow up, as they say. If you leave out the cognitive and focus on the relational you really have no content with which to understand him, and so you get puffed up and you just blow up that way. So you have to have both. You have to know him, both <coughs> things about him, and you have to be able to relate to him, commune with him. Just like those of you that are married, you understand with your spouse, you have to get to know them both relationally and cognitively, both. It takes That's the combination of intimacy we're looking for. So... When you have intimacy, what's going to come from that are three things, and these are the things that the Psalm 23 is going to teach us. Provision, guidance, and protection. Does anybody want that? Well, I do. 
don't know about you, but I want those things in my life. And this, is, this psalm is telling me how God chooses to work this out. It's giving me God's process. This is a process of how to live life. And you can apply this to all of life, not just to finding your calling. You know, we're using it as a tool to help us find our calling tonight, but you can apply it to anything in life. All right. So here's the, here's the psalm. We've all probably heard sermons on this, read it since you were, I mean, I remember this psalm back in vacation Bible school when I was a young Baptist. This is a big deal. Anybody been to vacation Bible school at the Baptist church? Okay. I remember this one big time. Uh, didn't really understand it, but I remember it. So let me just read it to you, and then we'll, we'll dig into it a bit. The Lord is my shepherd. I, I lack nothing. You hear that? I lack nothing. Any of you think you got lack? Be brutally honest. Yeah, we all think we got lack. Eh? Yeah, and we all think that way. Jesus, or what David says here, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Did you know that David was a shepherd? Remember that? That was his first calling as a young boy was to be a shepherd. You probably think, well, he was a warrior. Yeah, he was. But being the shepherd prepared him to be a warrior. Remember how he did that? What, what, did, a shepherd, what did a shepherd have when he was out with the sheep? You got staff and you have the rod. All right, and we're going to talk about what those mean in a second. But he had something else in this case, and from what I can tell, reading about shepherds, this other thing was not necessarily standard equipment. What was it? The sling. Now, David being a young boy, now why do you think he might have had a sling? Adventure. Maybe a little bored. <laughs> you know, something to do. You know, let's see. Uh, let's see if I can uh, see if I can knock that, you know, that little that little stone off that big rock there with this sling. <laughs> Missed. Let me try it again. <laughs> Missed. I'm gonna try it again. <laughs> Got it. Now let's go a little further. How many times do you think he did that? Over. Maybe probably both left-handed, right-handed, <laughs> ambidextrous. Do it either way. <laughs> and then, how do you think he fought off the lion and the bear? Remember that. He says, I fought the lion and the bear. I beat the lion and the bear. How would you beat the lion and the bear with a staff? Okay. Now, with the rod, he might have, because, you know, the rod was customized to the shepherd, and it had kind of a ball on one end, and they could throw it. You could throw the rod. So that could be an offensive weapon, but still, I mean, would you like to fight a lion or bear with a, with a stick that had a little ball on the end? How would you feel about that? I don't think so. Give me that slingshot. I've been working on this, baby. I'm going to hit you right between the eyes. Okay. What was he doing there? Training. It was all training. We think he was playing. He was training. God set up the scenario, put him in that situation, and used that boredom to prepare him. You see how God works? Isn't that incredible? All right. The Lord is my shepherd. He understood that very well. The shepherd now has become the sheep relative to the Lord. I like nothing. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. And you can see as he read along, he, he talks as if, he, if he's the sheep, and sometimes he talks as if he's a man. So he goes back and forth. Sheep don't have souls. Humans have souls. So he went from the sheep metaphor to a human metaphor. Now he's going to go back. He said he guides me along the right path for his name's sake. He's probably back talking about himself as a sheep. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. A very rich, rich psalm. But let's see what it has to do and what it says about finding your calling. So intimacy is the overarching theme. Intimacy with the shepherd is the overarching theme of this. So the first thing he's going to tell us is that intimacy leads, whoops, I know you can do this, come on, there we go. Intimacy leads to provision. Then he's going to show us that intimacy leads to guidance. And then he's going to show us that intimacy leads to protection. So those are the three major things we're going to see. Subsets of being intimate with the Father. So let's talk about provision first. The Lord is my shepherd. The shepherd provides for the sheep. He provides exactly what they need, when they need it, how they need it. He says, I lack nothing. And then he illustrates that. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. Now, the whole, he makes me lie down in green pastures, that's again, that's referring to the sheep. Now, think about this. What, what does a green pasture do for a sheep? Yeah. Well, it provides grass there to feed, but also it's his bed. It's his house. He's providing a place for you to live and a place for you to be fed. In addition, he leads me beside quiet waters. Now, what's the point of quiet waters? How many of you have ever tried to drink water out of a stream? You ever done that? Or a lake? Have you done that? Now, suppose that you can't use your hands. Okay, you have your hands behind you, and I've got to drink that water. Okay. And, and have you you've seen... When the water's going up and down, <laughs> we, we were at the symphony not too long ago, and they had a water fountain there. And when you push the button, it would squirt up real high, and then go down like this. <laughs> so everybody's trying to figure out, Art, how do I do this? A great picture of water that's not still. What you want is that stream of water to be steady. The same rate, same elevation, so now I can put my my mouth down there, and I can get a drink. Well, I think that's the picture. That he provides water that's still, so it's easy for the sheep to go and get, get water. Wow. He just made it easy for us. He refreshes my soul. How many of you feel refreshed tonight? I mean, really feel refreshed. Your soul is at peace. You know, everything is okay. 
Who here's got a Bible? Okay, go to read Third John, verse two. Somebody do that for us. Third John, verse two. You find Third John. You can go to Re- Revelation. You can go left. Really, you can find Revelation. Then go left. Third John, verse two. Read it, Galen. What's it say? Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. You see what it's saying? When we when we greet one another, what do we say to one another? How you doing? Right? The reality is, in the Lord, the answer is always the same. It's well with my soul. Hmm. Doesn't matter what's going on. What the trauma is, what the trial is, what the tribulation is. If you know the Lord, it is well with your soul. So John here is saying, may you always be aware that no matter what's going on, it's well with your soul and may you live in the reality of the wellness of your soul. So it says, may you physically experience the reality of the wellness of your soul. You see what he's saying here? You know, I, this is where we Christians, we don't get it, what we have in Christ. We have peace with God. We have redemption. We are reconciled. There's no longer enmity between us and God because of Christ. I mean, what, tell me what is more important than that. I don't know what's more important than that. If I have peace with God, what else do I really need? We might say, well, I need a burger. Well, (laughs) okay. Uh, Yeah, you you need some physical food, which is a temporary thing. You need some water, which is a temporary thing. But when you have peace with God, you have the greatest thing of all. And so he's reflecting on the reality that his soul is refreshed. The shepherd has taken care of. Of all the issues of my life, everything else now is really just a minor blip on the radar. Really doesn't matter that much because the big things are covered. So this is what happens when we are connected to the, to the shepherd. There is no lack. There's always provision. Now that's hard to, for us to get to because everyone here probably can think of that times well. Man, I could sure use the money in this situation, or I could use this over here, or this opportunity, or the relationship, or whatever. We think of all those things. But guess what? We are thinking as humans. And when we begin to think like, like Jesus thinks, and like God wants us to think, we recognize he is in every situation mm-hmm. accomplishing his will. It doesn't matter what it is. He's there doing something, and it's always good, even when it involves something painful like death. Do you think it was a bad day when Jesus died on the cross? Yeah. It looked like a bad day. Jesus suffered. And you say, well, my goodness, the only man that never had to die, he was not under the curse of death, apart from Adam and Eve prior to the fall. He did not have to die. He voluntarily died. It looked like a bad day for Jesus. It was the greatest day of all. God was in that very bad situation to accomplish something incredible. That's the way God works. This is his pattern. This is his process. This is the way he wants us 
to learn to live life. So first thing we have to do if we're going to find the purpose of God for our life is we've got to recognize the intentionality of God and the fact that he will provide what's needed to do what we're called to do. It doesn't matter what it is. He will take care of it. You know, people will ask me, well, you, you feel like you've, you've done what you're supposed to do. And I say, well, I feel like I've done what I'm supposed to do up to today, that I've always had provision to do whatever it is that God wanted me to do, and I haven't always understood it, and I haven't always liked it. I haven't always wanted to do it. But I know he is a redeemer, and he's always providing me the, the time, the talent, the treasure, the relationship, the opportunities, whatever it is I need to do, what it is that he's called me to do. So provision is not a problem for God. We have a perception problem that makes us think that provision is a problem. But provision is never a problem. All right. So let me just give you a couple examples of this. David, let me just, we'll do a physical provision and a spiritual provision. Remember when David and his men were fleeing Saul. Now, why were they fleeing Saul? Saul's trying to kill him. Why is he trying to kill him? Why is he jealous? Saul had been rejected as king, and David had been anointed to succeed him as king. Saul knew that. Saul didn't like that. So Saul thought he could... Do something to reverse God's will. So we're going to eliminate God's anointed here. As if, you know, that really would ever happen. And if it did, I mean, God can raise from the dead. I mean, it's no big deal. I mean, it's kind of ludicrous when you stop and think about it. But yet, David is, David is you know, a young man. He's growing. He's maturing. He's not fully there in his own maturity in Christ. But so he's running, fleeing. And here's, a, you know, an example where he was hungry. So he shows up, and at, the, at, at a place, this was not in Jerusalem, but not far outside Jerusalem. So we have, we have a, a, a temple, that's not a temple, but a tabernacle set up there. And, of course, you know, they have in the tabernacle, they have the showbread, or the bread of presence. And once a week, they would break, bake 12 fresh loaves of bread and put it on the, on the table. And they would take the 12 from last week, and the priests could eat those. <coughs> Well, David comes into the priest and says, hey, we're hungry. We need something to eat. That's right. The guy says, well, all I've got is the bread we just took off, you know. But here, you can have it. Now, that looked like it broke the law. Of course, Jesus gives us a correct understanding in Matthew chapter 12 when he points out that the law is not the big deal. The big deal is man. And it was okay with God that his servant David and his companions were fed with that bread that had been removed from the table, uh, the table in the temple, or the table in the tabernacle. And so that's an example of how God provided for David when David was very hungry. Has anybody experienced something like that where God has just dropped something in your lap and said, wow, how did that happen? Yeah, yeah. God does stuff like that. Now how about spiritual provision? Oh, this, is, this is an amazing one here. See if we cooperate, please. Okay. Remember Jonathan? Mm-hmm. Well, 
I guess I'm not patient enough. Be patient now. Ah, there we go. Remember Jonathan? Jonathan was Saul's son. He should have been in the line of Saul to become king. Saul underst- Jonathan understood that David was anointed king, and he supported God's choice. Smart thing, isn't it? So on one occasion, when David is weary from running and hiding from Saul and needs encouragement, the Lord sends Jonathan out. This is found in 1 Samuel chapter 23. Samuel goes out, or, or Jonathan goes out and encourages and strengthens David in the Lord. Now think about this. The man that, that David is replacing is now the tool to strengthen David as he's weary from his journey. David's in the process of walking out his destiny. And it's a battle. It's a fight. He's weary. He's discouraged. He's saying, how long? The best we can tell, David was about 25 when he was anointed king. He didn't become king until he was 30. Five years of Saul after him. Over and over again trying to kill him. So he needed some spiritual encouragement. So there's spiritual provision here by Jonathan to help David. There's always provision for whatever it is, whether it's spiritual provision, physical provision, relational provision, an opportunity you need, whatever it is that you need. When the timing's right, God sends a person. He sends a situation. He sends an opportunity. He sends a relationship. That's right. So provision comes as we are intimate with him. He provides for those he loves. Okay, let's go on to the next one. Guidance. If you want to find your calling, you've got to be willing to let God guide you into that calling. Now, let me ask you a quick question before we dig into this text. What comes first? Faith? Or guidance? Okay. Now, most people would say, y'all are very good. My compliments to you. Do you want to say something different? No. Okay. <laughs> huh? Not at all. All right. Most people say, God, you guide me and I believe you. In fact, it's real. one of the things that's going on today in Christianity, that at least that I observe, it's happening in my church, for example, is there's this the enamor with the supernatural. Which, first of all, let me say this. I love it when God trumps his own rules and does things quickly. I love it. (laughs) I love it when he heals people. Okay, That's that's really a wonderful thing. But that's not the game. In fact, Jesus makes it very clear in Matthew chapter 11. It's a very interesting text. It talks about Jesus, and he, he is reflecting on all the miracles he had done in certain cities. And the text says he renounced those cities. Now, you hear what I'm saying? Jesus would look at these cities where he did these miracles and say, I renounce you. It's kind of like I curse you. Why would he do that? I mean, he did these miracles there, these incredible things. It's like, Hey, I demonstrated that I am the Son of God. Wasn't that a good thing? 
Now, the text was very clear why he did that. Because they did not repent. You see, God is looking for changed hearts. We are looking for miracles. That's great. He's looking for something different. So we've got to get really clear that guidance is not something to get us to believe him. We believe, and then he guides. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. What comes first, faith or guidance? Faith. Faith precedes guidance. Okay, so here we have, he guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. See what he's saying here? How many of you ever worked on a, a ranch? Have you all worked on a ranch? Okay, you work on a ranch, you got cattle, right? That's kind of the definition of ranch, you got cattle, <laughs> at least here in Texas. Okay, so now you've got a ranch next to you that's got cattle too. And cattle can ignore fences. So you got so many cows, they got so many cows. So how do you make sure that if your cows get mingled, you can tell which ones are yours? What do you do? Brand brand you brand them. And so you say, that's mine with a brand. Well, guess what? When it says his name's sake, he knows who are his. Yes. We've been branded. Yes. So... This is a very personal relationship we have with the shepherd. We, are, we belong to him. He's got our name. He's, he's got his reputation at stake by virtue of the relationship with us. So he guides me along the right paths because we are his, and he cares about us. He wants the best for us. Now, please note this idea of right path. And we're in a culture today where... It's very common to hear people say, well, what's right for you is right for you, and what's right for me is right for me. <laughs> you know, that's the, very, that's the postmodern mentality of today where things are relative. <clears throat> truth is relative. There's not really any absolute truth. Of course, we know that's ridiculous because gravity is not relative, right. is it? <laughs> no, it's, gravity is true for all of us. You know, that's just a simple example. You know, oxygen. It's, it's a necessity for all of us. It's, if you're going to live, you've got to have oxygen, period. We don't know how to live without it. So we all, we, there's these absolutes that are here that we just kind of ignore and we talk about everything's relative. Well, to God, there is a right path. There is his will and his ways, and he gets to define them. We don't get to define them. So the shepherd has defined the right path, and now the shepherd's going to guide me along that right path because I'm his, and he wants his to be cared for and his to do what it is that he's created them to do. So you have this guidance going on that's all about, it's all about protecting us and seeing that we are on the way to do what God has called us to do. Well, I'm having a lot of fun with this. You know, I don't know why. I'm trying to be very patient. Will you cooperate? Would you do this now, please?
I don't know why he's doing that. Well, I was going to give you, I'll just give you the example of guidance that I was going to give you. Um, an example of how God guides was when David was fighting the Philistines. You may recall that story in 2 Samuel chapter 5. It's an interesting story because the Philistines come to attack the Israelites. David's now been fully installed as king, and David's doing what kings should do. He's leading his army. And they're out in the battlefield. He gets word the Philistines are coming. And so what he does is he does what, what godly kings should do. You remember what he did? What did you say? Raised his hands. No. What he did? What, 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 if you've got a battle coming up, what's the first thing you ought to do? How about pray? He prayed. He sought the Lord. Yeah. He said he prayed. He said, Lord, what do you want me to do? The Philistines are coming. And the Lord responded. Now he said, uh, David, don't do what you did last time. That's a big clue right there. How many of you, we all do this. I shouldn't say how many of you, we all do this. Once we find something that works, we ride that pony pretty hard, don't we? Yeah, we ride that pony hard. We got this one. We know what to do here. Well, guess what? God is, he, he does things differently. He's not constrained. He's not limited like we are. So he said, don't do what, what you did last time. Here's the deal. Here's the strategy. Wouldn't, wouldn't you like for God to give you a strategy, a business plan, a life plan, a career plan, a marriage plan? You want God to do that? Well, guess what? He's into doing that if we line up with him. And he really is the shepherd of our souls. So he says to David, okay, David, here's what you do. You take your army and you go hide in the trees and you wait until you hear the tops of the trees rustling. And when you hear that, Charge, because I'm going to give them to you. He said, what kind of deal is this? Well, Lord, why don't you just strike them all dead and we'll just go pick up the, the booty? No, nope, no, nope, that's not the way it works. He's going to want, he wants you to fight the battle. And he wants you to fight the battle his way. He wants you to fight it in his time. And he gets to define everything. That's the way he wants us to live. He wants, us, he wants to guide us into the right paths. And there's something, other things going on there that, that he doesn't tell us in the text, but undoubtedly were going on that were preparing men and women to do what they were called to do. Because God is always multitasking. I know most, most women think that men can't multitask, and that's probably true. We don't multitask well. But guess what? God multitasks very well. All the time. <coughs> He's always working in everyone's life, every place, doing what he wants done. Okay, let's talk about provision here. That's the, the third element here. <coughs> so we've had, let me get on the right slide here. We've been through provision, we've been through guidance, and now we're going to talk about, you can do this, I know you can do it. Come on. Protection. All right. Success. All right. Okay. Now we're looking at a verse that most of us would really not like to look at. Have you ever 
thought about carrying a pair of scissors around, and when you find a verse you don't like, just cut it out. Yes. So about, you know, uh, we probably all deep down have thought about that. Like, I really don't like that verse. Can we just cut that one out? All right, so now he says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, or some translations, the valley of the shadow of death, that's what I learned as a Baptist, okay? Yeah. I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Ouch. Yeah, that, that's one of those ouch hallelujahs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what an ouch hallelujah is? <laughs> it's when God puts you in the, in, the, in the fire in the pit, you know, and it's burning the flesh. It's ouch hallelujah. <laughs> the flesh is going away, which is good, but it sure is painful. Okay, so he says here, it doesn't matter what the trial and tribulation is. I will not fear bad things, evil things. I will not fear the enemy. I will not fear, fear any of his tactics, any of his minions, any of the people on this planet are committed to him, and there are a lot of them committed to him. I'm not going to fear any of that because I have an intimate relationship with the shepherd. You see, we are close. And then he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He said, wait a minute. Now, does a rod and a staff really comfort you? <laughs> really? Come on. What would comfort me was comfort food, right? <laughs> you know, mashed potatoes and gravy and biscuits. I mean, that's, that's, that comforts me. But a rod and a staff, how does that comfort you? <laughs> Well, this is, where, this is where authority comes in. You see, if we are intimate with the Father, we are under his authority, which includes, includes under the delegated authority right. that he's put in the That's universe. Right. You see, God works through delegated authority. The first delegated authority you came in contact with when you were born, for most of us, was what? Parents. Your parents. They are appointed by God to be your authority as children. Now, I know some of you, you know, may have had an experience in an orphanage or whatever like that, but guess what? God provided some kind of parent, somebody with a role of a parent in your life. And that was divinely ordained. I was, I was doing SLA one time out in California. I know you probably think, well, gosh, can you do it in California? Yeah, you can. <laughs> you, can. you can do it out there. And there was a, a physician there. With, with his son. And, and I looked at this physician, and I looked at the son, and they didn't look alike at all. The physician is, is kind of short and, and lean and, you know, not strong. The son looks like a bodybuilder. And he's got totally different complexion, you think. Something's going on here. <laughs> So, but I, you know, I just didn't think a lot about it until we got to a discussion point and the father raises his hand and says, do you think that, that God is in or ordains adoption? I immediately knew where that was going. You know, I said, yes. Why would he not be? Is he in your natural parents? Well, yeah, I believe he is. Well, why wouldn't he be in his, your adopted parents? Why would he be in your why would you think that he wouldn't be in adoption? You know, God is in control of his universe. He orchestrates all things to accomplish his purpose. So it doesn't matter whether you're dealing with natural parents or adopted parents, foster parents, it doesn't matter. Your child, get under authority. 
When you're a student, you're under authority. When you're in the context of a local church, you should be under authority. When you are at, school, at, uh, at work, you should be under authority. When you go out and leave this parking lot, you should be the under authority as you drive the streets or go wherever you go. Civil authority. You see, God has ordained all of these authority figures. In fact, Romans 13 is very clear. You go and read about civil authorities there, and it says civil authorities have been ordained by God to do you good. That's what one translation says. Now, what does that mean, to do you good? Well, one way to help you understand that is to recognize that good in the Scripture is different from the good that we use in our common vernacular. When we say good, we mean we like it. Oh, that's good. That's what we mean. But in Scripture, good means it lines up with God. Different, isn't it? Not the same. You know, one of the things I'm trying to do with my own uh, just common language is to avoid using the word good unless I really mean alignment with God. And then I'll use it. I'm trying to do it. I'm not perfect at it, but I'm working at developing that because I know that we are sloppy in our language and using a, an attribute of God and, a tr- and, call, and basically trivializing an attribute of God. So we want to be very clear that God is doing good. He's bringing alignment with himself, and he uses civil authorities to do it. So when that policeman pulls you over to give you a ticket, he's trying to bring you in alignment with the laws, which should be reflective of the laws of God. When the parent corrects you, they're trying to bring you in alignment with God, which should be in alignment with the principles of God. When that teacher corrects you, the same thing. When that employer corrects you, it's the same thing. Now, this is not perfect because we are fallen. But that's the intent, and that's why we submit. And Scripture makes it clear that we're to submit even to dysfunctional authority. <laughs> Check out 1 Peter 2 if you want to see this. And the pattern for this is none other than Jesus Christ. Yeah. He submitted to dysfunctional authority. And he was killed. But God was in it. Wow. Now see, that's, that's difficult for us to get to, but this is the way God works. If we want to walk in the protection of God, and protection is keeping us in the will of God. Now we think protection is about keeping us physically safe. God is about protecting us spiritually first. You know, God doesn't have a problem with death. He doesn't have a problem with suffering. We are the ones that have that problem. So we keep reinterpreting Scripture to suit us. Well, God, I want you to protect me from any kind of financial calamity, any kind of job calamity, (laughs) relational calamity, you know, suffering, pain. I want you to protect me from all that. That's what we want. Well, God's not into that. That is your will. That's not his will. His will is about doing whatever he needs to do in your life to bring you in alignment with him. And if you've raised children, have you realized that sometimes to get them to line up with the will of God, it is, it, it is a challenge. It Amen. requires pain, Amen. correction. So if parents have to do that, God doesn't have a problem doing that to us. He will do whatever it takes to give us that opportunity to line up with him. So the, <clears throat> David the sheep here 
talking about the great shepherd, is talking about his intimate relationship here where there is no fear of evil because he fears God. When you fear God, you have no other fears. There is no other fear. Okay? For you are with me intimately, and your authority is clear. Your rod and your staff comfort me because I know you're always going to work everything for good. That is alignment with you no matter what it is. Now, see, that's just kind of mind-boggling for us. It's just so beyond how we normally think. Now, the rod and the staff are very interesting. The staff has two parts. You know, it's got the crook part, and it's got a, a blunt tip. Now, what I've read, I'm not a shepherd, so I have to read what shepherds say about this. They, what I read indicated that the two basic tools of a shepherd are the rod and the staff. It said nothing about slingshot. That's not a basic tool. That's something David added for his own destiny and purpose. Of course, he didn't know it at the time. And so the, the crook here, the crooked end, is designed to rescue the sheep that get tangled up in the bushes to pull them out. Okay? And that's what happens. Sheep get tangled up, and they can't get out. So reaches in there and gently pulls them out with that crooked part. It also is a way that the shepherd pulls the sheep close to him when the, when the sheep needs to be comforted or maybe he needs some medicine or maybe he needs a little help with eating or something. So it's a way to be a little more close, a little more intimate. So it's got two purposes for that, the crooked part. Now, the blunt part, you want to use the blunt part for it? No, they don't beat them. No, 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 they don't beat them. No, the blunt part is used to guide them. Sheep's going astray. He just reaches out with a staff. The blunt part just gently pushes the sheep back on path, you know, back in alignment. So that's that's the the staff. Now the rod is a little different because the rod now is custom made to the shepherd. It's however tall he is. It's just it's so tall. And there's a, a ball on the end, and they learn to throw it. I mean, to me, it's kind of like a picture of a, have you seen a, a drum major? The kind of baton they have, that long baton with a ball on the end. I've never seen them throw one, but, you know, they use it to direct the band, and, you know, they can do the twirling thing that they do to say forward march and all that or turn or whatever. Well, it's that kind of thing, except you can throw it. It becomes an offensive weapon and a defensive weapon. Now, that one probably could be used to issue correction to the sheep if he wanted to. But what I read didn't really focus on that. It focused on protecting the sheep. And so these symbols of authority speak of living under authority and the comfort and the peace and the joy that we have in living under the protection of the authority of God. So you hear what he's saying here? This intimacy is so critical. It's provision, guidance, and protection. These are the manifestations of being intimate with the Father, with him guiding and directing your life. I'm going to go on for the sake of time here. We've talked a little bit about David. I want to get back to Billy here before too long here because I want to leave some time for us to talk. Now, this whole chapter is about intimacy. Starting out with the Lord is my shepherd. 
to he refreshes my soul, down to the rod and the staff, they comfort me. Those are all expressions of intimacy with the Father, the shepherd. And now the end, the last two verses are really pressing this in. These are verses that talk about hospitality. Now think about this. If you really have a close relationship with someone, don't you experience hospitality with that person? Well, look what he says. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, what's the table? The table speaks of food. There's provision, ample resources for you to eat, and it doesn't matter what's going on. What the battle is, I'm there. How many of you have been in the military? What's it like when you get on the battlefield? You know, what kind of food do you have? On the battlefield? On the battlefield. You're fighting a war. What kind of food do you have? You're deployed on the battlefield close to it it's typically MREs stuff like that yeah cold package which not great is it I was glad to leave it behind me yes yeah (laughs) not great food well here we have God preparing a banquet table imagine going into battle and God's got a banquet table oh I know you're going into battle here in a few minutes in fact when you when you pop your head up there you're going to get shot at so here have a feast (laughs) we want you to be well fed and don't worry about it. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be right behind you. And we're going to make sure that you win. So this is the picture here. It's that there is ample provision, no matter what the battle is. Good. Then he says, you anoint my head with oil. Now, it was customary in those times that when you came into someone's home, you, were, you probably were dirty and dusty and hot and sweaty. So refreshment would be nice. Mm -hmm. You know, we were driving down here the other day, and my wife was taking a nice rest. It was getting along in the afternoon, and we get up early. So in the middle of the afternoon, I kind of begin to wilt a little bit. Mm -hmm. I needed a little refreshment. So I had to stop and get a a little soft drink to kind of perk me up, you know, a refreshment. It was nice to do that. I appreciated that. Well, in those times, they, the way they did it is you came into someone's home, they would anoint your head with oil. Mm. And that was refreshing. Ah, oh, it feels good. You know, it just kind of soothes the skin. The skin's hot and dusty. You know, just everything kind of cleans off. So that's hospitality. It's very kind. Remember when Jesus went into the Pharisee's mm-hmm. home and they didn't anoint his head? But yet the prostitute came and anointed his feet and washed his feet with oil, with precious oil, and wiped them off with her hair. You see, that that's hospitality. And he pointed out to his host, you didn't do that. You didn't treat me with the normal hospitality you would treat most other people. Well, the Father gives great hospitality because we have an intimate relationship with him. And he says, my cup overflows. Now, we live in a time where we have plenty of cups. Back in those times, you had your cup. That was your cup. You didn't have more than one cup. You had your cup. Okay, you took care of your cup. And so what the Father's saying here is, as the shepherd, I'm going to make sure there's ample water or wine or whatever. I know the Baptists wouldn't agree with that, but... Grape juice. Grape juice. <laughs> Ample beverage for you to refresh you. 
You come in from a long walk, you're hot and you're sweaty. Oh, now, here's the oil. Oh, feels so good. Now, oh, that water is really good. It really is good. Oh, look at the food. Wow. I mean, what else do you need? The only thing you need now is bed. <laughs> Go to sleep after that. Well, that's a picture of the hospitality. That is the intimacy, a picture of the intimacy we have with him. So this is kind of a summary of this is how he wants us to live. Do you want to find the purpose of God for your life? Do you really want to find that? Then one of the keys is press into that intimacy with him. And as you do that, there's provision. There's guidance. There's protection. Incredible hospitality from the Father. And then he concludes. He says this. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's like, wow, everything's okay. Goodness and mercy will follow me because I live in this intimate relationship with the great shepherd of the sheep who is taking care of his flock. And seeing that his flock does what the flock is supposed to do, is properly provided for, is properly guided, is properly nourished, is properly cared for. Everything is in order. So all of this is rooted in the idea, the concept of being intimate with the Father. You know, when you're intimate with the Father, you don't have to perform to prove that you're a sheep. You know? You don't have to perform to prove that you're a sheep. Yeah, I wish we had time to talk about performance. We don't, but we are all born with a proclivity to perform. And that means that we default to performing to try to get God to be happy with us. You know, what religious thing do I need to do to make you happy, God, so you'll do what I want you to do? <laughs> That's where we all are. And he said, I, I'm not into that. What I'm into is you're my sheep, and I want to relate to you as the shepherd, and you're my sheep, and you're mine. I bought and paid for you. You're mine. You got my brand on you. I do things because you're mine. <clears throat> See, so getting to that level of relationship with the Lord is absolutely key. So intimacy, this is why I'm stressing this. You get this? Intimacy is one of the greatest things you can do to get on the process of discovering the purpose of God for your life. And what flows from that will be provision and then guidance and protection. That's great. Okay. You see the idea? Yeah. Okay. So now let's, let's conclude. Little takeaway. <coughs> Wonderful. <laughs> it worked. Okay. So you can see I've got my intimacy, provision, guidance, and protection there in the first column here. Okay. And then the column to the right, I've got some subpoints from the text that illustrate those. And then I have the next column you see is David. And the last column you're going to see in a minute will be Billy. We're going to get back to Billy. So David here experienced the reality of intimacy with God. He experienced that in first having to learn the wrong way and then the right way. Remember in 2 Samuel chapter 6, it's so interesting. This is right after 2 Samuel chapter 5. You say, surprise, surprise. Well, remember 2 Samuel chapter 5? We talked about that earlier. 
That was where David was being attacked by the Philistines. Remember that? And what did he do? Prayed. Prayed. Right. He didn't conduct a war council. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a war council, but the first thing you should do before you conduct that war council is pray. I was very blessed before I came down here. I had one of my clients ask me to come and do a, a little short presentation at the beginning of the board meeting. And they wanted me to really set the tone for the meeting. I thought, great, I'm happy to do it. So I opened up James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, and I walked them through what strategic planning is. <clears throat> now, how many of you have ever been trained biblically in strategic planning? Well, you have, but you don't count because you understand it. <laughs> I don't mean you don't count, but I mean in this context where other people are here that don't have that training. That's what I'm talking about. You count, Philip. See, the reality is that only one of you has had any training. And that's, you probably would be startled to know what Scripture has to say, but it's very specific about how you plan. I'll just paraphrase it to you. Now, I said, okay, now listen to you guys who say, we're going to go to this or that city and do this, this, and that over the next year and make a bunch of money. Isn't that a strategic plan? Listen, I've written scores of these, and they always say that. Yeah. <laughs> always. It doesn't matter what business right. you're in, they always say that. Right. Then James says, well, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. I mean, who are you to be so presumptuous, to be so arrogant, to think that it's all about the money? He said, instead, this is what you ought to be doing. You should be saying, if it is the Lord's will, we will do this or we will do that. You see, the measurement of a plan is not the money. It's alignment with God's will. Mm -hmm. And secondarily, when you line up with God's will, there will be some level of provision released to accomplish then the next phase of his will. You understand what money's for? Money's not for you. It's not for your pleasure and happiness. In fact, if you go back to the beginning of James 4, he starts out talking about if you are working to make money, to spend your own, your own yeah. pleasures, you are a spiritual adulterer. Now, you might say, well, that's pretty bad. Well, it gets worse. <laughs> it gets worse. He then says, you are an enemy of God. I don't want to be either one of those. So I know immediately I cannot think about money like the world thinks. Yeah. Money cannot be, in my mind, something to be used for my pleasure. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to have pleasure. But God wants you to think of money correctly. And the way you think about money is money becomes a tool to do That's the right. will of God. That's right. That's what it is. That's all it is. It's like time. Time is a tool to do the will of God. It's like your talent. Your talent is a tool to do the will of God. It's about opportunities. If God is in it, it's a tool to do the will of God. So as you begin to recognize that all these things that I get all enamored about and excited about, no, they're all just tools. That if they're properly perceived of, properly understood, properly utilized, they enable me to line up with the will of ways of God. So you've got to have the right view of money. So that's what he's talking about strategically is you've got to get very clear, very clear, 
that strategic plan is first and foremost about discerning the will of God. Mm -hmm. And when you do that well, then provision flows from that. So that, that, that's, it's very encouraging when you see people grab a hold of that reality and begin to walk that out. And that comes from an intimate relationship with God, which what matters is what does the Father want to do? What's he trying to accomplish in and through me, in and through this organization I'm part of? That's a, that was a pretty large business, wasn't it? It's a pretty good-sized business, yes. So here's David in, in 2 Samuel chapter 6. The ark is not in the city of David. It's out in the country. It had been returned by the Philistines, and David's trying to get it now in the city. Now, you remember David's just had this great experience with God where God gave him this great victory and how he did the things right, and now David's going to do something wrong. Isn't it? You ever done that? Did a great victory. Well, I, hey, did that one right, man. Baby, that's great because guess what? Better look out because the next test is going to tempt you to see if you'll do it right again or you're going to capitulate to the world. But what did David do? He didn't read scripture. He didn't know the ways of God. Or if he knew the ways of God, he ignored it or he thought he had a better way. So he starts transporting the ark on a cart. And remember, the ark was supposed to be transported by priests carrying poles. So here, here they come. They're rocking along. And there's this man, Uzzah. And Uzzah's a great guy trying to make sure everything is okay. And the, the oxen stumble. The, the cart shakes. The ark is about to fall off. And Uzzah's Right, be sure everything's okay. As soon as he touched it, God struck him dead. <laughs> Wait a minute. I was just trying to help. Why didn't you strike anybody else? Why did you pick Uzzah? Well, God is God. He can do as he pleases. Now, you know what really made David mad? He got very angry. He got ticked off. And he got very afraid. He lost his intimacy with the Father. Mm -hmm. But guess what? A few months later, he hears that the ark, which had been temporarily put in this other person's home, was just blessing the socks off this home. <laughs> well, I'm going to go get it, and I'm going to do it right this time. And so he did it right, and he brought it to Jerusalem. And so, again, the intimacy is restored, which pictures for us that you can lose that intimacy, but it can be restored. It's restored through a soft, pliable heart who is obedient to the will and ways of God. So this intimacy is a great picture of intimacy lost and intimacy regained here in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now another example here is this provision. We mentioned this in the text about the bread of presence feeding David. That was no lack. David, Even when David and his warriors were hungry and tired and thirsty, God provided. He provided right out of the, the tabernacle for them. We also talked about the guidance that David had through the special revelation. Do you understand God reveals things to us? You understand that's how it works? You don't know anything if God doesn't reveal it to you. Right. Well, you might say, well, I know one and one is two. Well, guess what? That was revealed by God to somebody who happened to propagate it on down, and other people were given the grace to receive it. That's revelation. God works through revelation. There are three sources of revelation. First, there is general revelation, which is the revelation of God in creation. It's available to virtually everyone. There's special revelation, which is a revelation of God in Scripture. Mm -hmm. 
And there's specific revelation, which is the revelation of God through the Holy Spirit, just like David got for how to fight the Philistines. That was a specific revelation for a specific situation right. at a specific time and a specific place. That's right. Isn't it nice to know that God will work that way? Yeah. Would you like to be related to a God that does that? Yeah, I do. How many times have you asked the Lord, Lord, I need, I need specific revelation on this situation. I don't have a clue what to do. That's pretty much a daily prayer for me. And I'm going to commend to you that that should be a daily prayer for you. So that guidance is there. You know, general, special, specific revelation. We use specific revelation as an example. And finally, protection. And David, of course, was protected from Saul. And one example, that is 1 Samuel chapter 23. And you can see this is just one of many examples where Saul was getting very close to David. Almost got him. In fact, David's on one side of the mountain. Saul's on this side of the mountain. And, I mean, bearing down, it doesn't look good. And guess what happens? This messenger shows up and says to Saul, the Philistines have invaded. And so Saul has to make a choice. Do I go after David and kill him or do I go defend the country? So he abandoned the pursuit for David and went to defend the country. Well, that wasn't just a random event. That was God's protection. That's how God works. Okay, so those you see the, the examples here, the illustrations? So now let's take a look at Billy. Now back to our friend Billy. Remember, Billy's got this conundrum. What do I do? How, how do I move forward on my journey of my destiny? What God's called me to do. I've, I've become a genuine Christian. I was elected to office because I was a casual Christian. I was a member of the gentlemen's clubs, and I was living like the world, living like a, like a pagan, but, you know, like everybody else, calling myself a Christian. So what do I do? So, well, the first things he needed was guidance. You know that? He needed guidance. He needed help. So what did he do? How many of you feel like you need guidance? You need help. Okay, so let's, let's talk about what Billy did. This is a great picture of him submitting to the great shepherd of the sheep. He remembered when he was with his aunt and uncle, he had met a man named John. And John was probably 15 years older, and John was a very godly man. And John had taken liking to him. To Billy at that time, Billy was probably 10, 11, 12. John was probably mid to late 20s, something like that, maybe into the 30s. And they kind of hit it off and had some good times together. But now they'd been separated for a number of years because, you know, remember Billy's mother retrieved him from those fanatical Christians and wanted to paganize him, which she did. And that, you know, he was paganized until he was 25. And then he, he came to Christ again. And so now he's needing to reconnect with somebody that's a fanatic. You understand what? You understand what a fanatic is. That's, that's the real Christian. And so he remembers John, so he contacts John. He said, John, can I come see you? John says, sure, come on. So he goes over to John. He lays out what's happened. And, of course, he's repenting for all of his sin, which is voluminous. It's kind of one of these things John says, you know, you know that's enough. I get it. You, know, you don't have to make a laundry list. I understand you were a total pagan, a rank pagan, lots of sin. But guess what? Christ covered it all. Covered it all. It's all covered in the blood. Don't worry about it. Now your question is, are you called to stay in public life? Is that what you're called to do? You're asking the question, you know, can I? Wrong question. The question is, are you called to stay in public life? You see, if you're called to something, you're connected to the great shepherd of the sheep. 
who can handle whatever it is out there that needs to be handled for you to do your calling. So the question is not, you know, should I or could I, it's are you called? He said, let me pray about that. So we prayed about it. He finally came back to Billy and said, Billy, I'm, I'm persuaded that God has called you to public life. He's gifted you. He's given you lots of favor. You know, you understand that world. You know what needs to be done. You know the laws of this land are increasingly pagan. They need to be, they need to be informed by the word of God. You need to become a great student of the word of God. You need to learn the word of God. I'm going to train you and help you do that. But I believe that God has a call on your life to serve in public life. Now, Billy listened to that authority figure, that spiritual father. See, he got under the rod and the staff. The rod and the staff comforted him while he's in this valley of the shadow of death, not having a clue what to do. And God's going to speak through the authority figure to guide him. And so he took that in and decided that that was what he would do. He would stay in public life. The next question is, what's he supposed to do? What's the next step? He, he didn't have a clue. And so he began to seek the Lord on that. Now, as he's doing this, you know, he needs an environment. He needs an environment where he can be encouraged to be intimate with the Father, where he can be nurtured. So there was set up a community that he was part of. He was part of setting this up of true, genuine believers in the midst of a very culture that was rejecting the genuineness of Christ. But they set up this community to specifically encourage one another to do what each one of them is called to do. So this became known as the Clapham Circle. I'm giving you clues to what this is. Some of you may begin to pick it up. The Clapham Circle was not far outside the city, and it's where they lived together in a little community, and they met together, they fellowshiped together, they counseled each other, they prayed together, they studied the Bible together. This was where they got their encouragement and their nourishment so then they could go out, each one, and do what they were called to do. You see, they were called to all kinds of different work activity. But they recognized each one has a ministry to wherever they were called. They, they were very holistic in their thought process. So they were working together to, to encourage one another to be intimate with the Father. Now, God had actually already provided a lot of guidance because <coughs> William P. was William Pitt. William Pitt's father was a very strong politician, very well regarded, very respected, and opened the door for William Pitt to be promoted to one of the chief political offices in the country. And, of course, Billy had become a politician because he was enamored with what he saw in William Pitt Sr. and Jr. So that was God's provision to get Billy in the right place even before he came to Christ. You can find the right place even before you come to Christ, or you might find the right place after you come to Christ. You see, God is not constrained. You've got to let God be God. He's very creative. You know, this time you, do the you beat the Philistines this way, next time you're going to beat them this way. Hey, no big deal. It's whatever he wants, and this is why we have to be dependent upon him. You see, we keep trying to figure God out. 
If we can figure him out, then we don't need him anymore. Mm. <laughs> no, we can never figure him out. Mm. He is very creative. So here we have the Clapham Circle that's providing the context for intimacy to grow. We have provision through the relationship with William Pitt that guided him when he had become very wealthy to playboy and didn't want to do anything else. This is the only thing that got his attention. God guided him through that, even before he came, came to Christ. And then we have the spiritual fathers providing the guidance after he's come to Christ, the affirmation, the commissioning, the saying, this, I believe, is what God's called you to do. You need to walk this out. And finally, we have the protection. You see, after he came to an understanding that he was called to public life, he asked the Lord, what am I to do? And the Lord gave him over about five years. It took him about five years to begin to discern this. He had two assignments. One was to write a book. He wrote a book on what true Christianity is. That's the book I mentioned to you that I've been reading and fascinated with. Okay? My wife can tell you, when I first started reading, I wasn't all that excited. The more I read, the more fascinated. The more caught, I, I got caught up with this thing because I thought, man, this sounds like he's writing today. I'll give you a clue. Billy didn't live anywhere close to today. And yet you read it, it sounds like he's writing and so Billy persuaded that he needed to do that, spent from about age 25 to about age 37 in becoming a very diligent Bible student. And when you start reading what he wrote at about age 37 or 38, it sounds like he has been seminary trained. I'm, I'm stunned at some of the things that he says in there about what real Christianity is. And I'm thinking, is there anybody I know that with just 10 years of training could write at this level? Could write this sound of thinking? Could see the cultural view and see the truth and contrast them so clearly? I mean, it's clearly the Holy Spirit speaking through him. Because all, by all rights, you say there's no way that this man at 37 having only known the Lord a little over 10 years, could have written this. See, that's one of the marks that you're on the road. Just, you do incredible things. That, you know, it just doesn't make sense. So you got that going on. And then you have a battle. Billy is given a task that he's really persuaded is his task. It's his mission in life. And now he's got to get this, this public policy changed. And transformed. It took him 18 years to win phase one of this battle. <clears throat> he didn't win the final phase until the day before he died. The rest of his life he spent on this battle, this human rights battle. But he was persuaded this is what God had called him to do. This is what he was created to do. This is why he was here. He was not going to give up. It didn't matter how bad. His life was threatened. The life of his family was threatened. I mean, this was a very intense battle, a very hard battle, a battle that nobody wanted him to win. And he worked hard and diligent to do it over a long period of time. It was not fun. It was not easy. But his intimacy with God enabled him to see the provision to see the guidance 
and to be protected along the way until the task was done. Now, that's going to happen to you and to me if we're willing to live as a sheep under the great shepherd. And the reality of Psalm 23 can, be, can become our reality. You want that? Yeah. Well, I want that. I want that to be mine. All right, well, let's, let me, I'm going to pray, and then we're gonna, we'll talk a little bit together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word that's so powerful. Thank you that you have redeemed us by the blood of the Lamb. Thank you that we have a scripture like Psalm 23 that's so pregnant with truth about what it is to walk intimately with you. Thank you that you love us with that kind of love, that you will guide for us, you will provide for us, you will protect us. Father, give us grace to really believe and trust you in this. Lord, let the word go deep in us. Let it transform us for your glory and honor. Jesus.